Our Father, we're grateful that you have ministered to us this morning with, with your word, and we are grateful that we can come to you like children to receive. We are in need. And even this morning, Lord, as we spend this time together in your word, um, would you in your kindness meet us again? We can't make the Bible happen. We can't make your word become alive. That is your business, and it is in your power. And we ask that you'll do that as we look into the book of Hosea a little bit this morning. Father, we're in need, and we're grateful. We know that you've met us in Christ, and we thank you for the hope and the joy that that brings. In your name we pray. Amen. Mark, could I interrupt you for a second? Sure. Would you mind? I've had several people ask me what a canon theologian is. Do you know? Um, <laughs> um, I've, you know, I, I did a Google search on Amazon, and nothing came up. Um, but Frank, Frank asked me to, to say a little bit about that uh, this morning, so I'll, I'll do that. And I'm happy to have some back and forth if you, if you have questions or if you have insights. I mean, that would be really helpful, too. Um, this has been a conversation that's been happening for, happening for a while, I think, um, with, between Frank and, and myself. Um, I'll just give you a little bit of background on what, what's led us to this point, and, and I've I'm going to be self-referential and a little bit anecdotal, and I'm not, I don't always like doing that, um, but, I'll, but I'll do it for the, for the sake of giving some context here. Um, my wife and I, um, as some of you know, are from a very conservative, I would say fundamentalist background. And when I say fundamentalist, I mean like the real deal, not the sort of they're to the right of me, therefore they're fundamentalists, but like self-identified fundamentalists. And, the old definition of fundamentalism is not a lot of fun, too much damn, and not too much mental either. Have you heard that? It's, it's um, I'm not proud of that. It's my, it's my heritage. It's my heritage. Um, so we, we've been on a long journey ecclesiastically, and um, and I think coming out of that, we we um, I was a youth director, a youth pastor for five years in a somewhat reformed but non-denominational church while I was doing seminary work at Reformed Theological Seminary. And, um, you know, we were probably in a spiral spiritually, both my wife and myself, just figuring out um, what it means to be Catholic, uh, little c Catholic, what it means um, to enter into a larger global communion. Um, There were a lot of questions that we had that really um, our past didn't quite prepare us for, though there's so much that it did prepare us for. So I'm very careful not to disparage where where we come from. Uh, we come from a world that loves the Bible, and you know that that took hold on me, and I'm I'm grateful for that. But we went over when I did my my postgraduate work in Scotland at the University of St Andrews. Um, you know, I had been in, in church leadership for five years. I'd been in seminary, it was, it, and so it was a time for us to get away from family, to get away from church leadership, and to just sort of go to church. That's the first time I'd done that in years. Um, just to go to church. And we, had, we decided, um, because both my wife and I were somewhat drawn to the liturgical tradition that was all new for us, we had decided that we were going to go to um, the Scottish Episcopal Church there, St. Andrew's, St. Andrew's, which is um, an, an interesting church. And I would say, um, from a testimonial standpoint, that it was the liturgy and the weekly Eucharist, and, and they, they celebrated Eucharist weekly at the church we attended, um, slowly began to heal, I think my wife would give this as her testimony, it began to heal her soul, and it was very healing for my soul as well. I don't think we could we could give you, an eight, I think we might be able to talk about means of grace, that kind of language, but there was something very visceral and powerful, and, and, and though this term can get dangerous, I'll just use it, experiential. 
um, that happened to us in the context of um, the Episcopal Church there, and and we just fell in love uh, with uh, with the liturgy, and also primarily because we love Jesus and we love the gospel, and the liturgy gave that to us every week. Um, you know, I'm talking to the choir now, you know, and um, but you, you all may, may may know this as well. And then uh, I spent a year. Uh, we were two years in, in St. Andrews, and then we were a year down in Oxford. I taught for a year at Wycliffe Hall, uh, which is an Anglican training college in, in Oxford. Um, and, um, and so the, the Anglican world, um, the, the Church of England, the, the global communion worldwide was something that had come onto our radar screen and had meant a lot to us. And, and that, that wasn't where we landed for various reasons providentially when we came into Birmingham, but we had been praying. I had been praying for a while that God, without any coercion, but of his own movement and grace, would provide some kind of platform or opportunity to be more formally connected to a church in, in a teaching ministry. Um, I, 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 didn't, you know, I wasn't sending out brochures or resumes. I was just quietly sort of praying over that. And over time, that kind of conversation began to happen very naturally between uh, the dean, Dean Limehouse, and myself. And while we were away in Germany the past uh, six months, he and I had a few co- phone conversations, and things began to emerge. And now, um, and now we're here in, in a lay canon theologian's role, but also moving, um, quite likely, um, with time into a discernment process about ordination as well. You can pray about that. Now, I don't know what all that's going to look like, and there's a, there probably there may be some hurdles, but to just let you know that's that's on the on the on the radar screen as well. So what does a canon theologian do? I asked Frank Limehouse that. I mean, what, does, what does this person do? Um, and uh, he said, well, you know, I want you to teach. And, and um, so I think we're still working out some of the details about what the job description actually is. But I, what I hope to be and what I'm prayerful about is to be a theological resource for the church. And that would be in a teaching setting like what we're doing here. And from what I understand, I'll probably travel. I mean, I don't think I'll stay in the dean's class, but do teaching. Also be a resource for small groups and small group leaders. Um, and also hopefully be a resource to the clergy here as, as the Lord would see fit in any way that, that I can be that. Um, and then also, you know, to begin to think and write um, in ways that are related to this particular uh, job description. I mean, to give you a little bit of context of what I do, I... I, mo- most of my life is Hebrew-related. Um, you know, some of you have asked me about coming and doing classes at Beeson Divinity School, which, which is where I teach, and I'll continue to teach. And I've said, you know, I'm, I'm happy for you to come, but everything, I, I really teach everything in Hebrew. It's, um, I'm not speaking Hebrew, but we're reading Hebrew. Um, and that's, that's my world, and I love that. I mean, I, I really like the Bible. Um, but I think this particular role here... Lord willing, will allow me to be able to stretch a little bit out of that, which is an interest of mine anyhow. Um, to do, to do, I'll, I'll do primarily Bible teaching because I, I really believe that that's important. Um, but I hope to do other things as well, um, more broadly theological issues that we might be able to engage, maybe figures within the history of the church. I've always wanted to do a class on the early church. We might do something on Karl Barth. I mean, the, the John Calvin, Thomas Cramer. I mean, there's just a lot of options. Um, and so you can pray about that if you have if you have an itch that you want scratched or however that's supposed to go, um, you know you feel free to let me know. But I think that's that's the role is one to be um, a theological resource for the church and to identify that and to actually to actualize that um, in in um, in teaching and preaching and, and that and that ministry there. Um, you can pray for us. This is this is a transition um, for our, for our children as well. 
Um, and, uh, and, you know, we, we covet your prayers. But we're very excited. I, I really do. Um, I'm stealing a phrase here from a friend of mine, but I really do believe that this is the parade of providence at work in our lives. And we've just sort of got on to the parade and we're following it. And, um, and we're grateful. So we're, we're glad to be here. We hope to serve you um, and to get to know you. And, um, and we're, we're really grateful. I should express my, my appreciation as well to Dean Limehouse and, and the vision that he's had for this as well. I mean, this wouldn't be happening if it weren't for, for him. And, and so I'm very, I'm very grateful. So that's, if clarification, I mean, you feel free to fight back on that. Um, that was probably as unclear as, as it is in my mind. But, um, but, I, but, I, but I hope to be able to be that kind of theological resource um, for the church. And I'll put it to you in another way, and this is where vocationally I, I, I view my identity changing, um, is before I really was an academic. You know, I lived in the world of academia, theological education, and then I would make forays into the church and do the kind of thing I'm doing here. And I've never been comfortable with that from a, from a vocational standpoint. And now I believe in some sense that that's being reversed in a, in a proper direction, and that my identity is located in, in a local church here in this particular um, expression of the church, and then I make forays into the academic world. I, guess that's kind of, I, wanna, I really do feel like in God's providence I'm, I'm more of a church person than I am um, a pure academic. And so that's, that's, I, I see this as God's goodness to me and allowing this all to come together. Um, so that's, I, I don't know, I haven't framed all that very well, but that's in a nutshell, I think, what's, what's going on. Do you, you want to fire any questions out? I mean, I... I don't know if it's supposed to be. Oh, thank you. Yep, thank you. No, that's very kind of you. Thank you. Thank you. <clears throat> and now you're kind of stuck. So, you know, in two years, it could be booze. You never know what I'll... Well, no, I, I hope not. I hope not. Um, okay. Well, we have um, four weeks together in this class. Uh, and then... Um, and I had... This, this class was actually on the docket before all this canon theologian stuff came about. Um, but I, I, I thought what we would do um, is spend four weeks together looking at some big themes in the Minor Prophets. And part of the reason of that is, and I've, I've asked the dean this, what, what do you want me to teach? And, and his response, and I appreciate this, is, you know, teach whatever you're excited about because, you know, that's, that's what we want you to do. And, and this is the world that I'm sort of living in now. And I think when we come back again in some other contexts, we'll press out of this. But I've, I've just been buried in the Minor Prophets. Um, I really like these these small but potent books that are located in the prophetic corpus. And you know this, I think, that for those of you who have done sort of Bible one-on-one, that if you were to look at the Bible from a Hebrew canon standpoint, say you were going down the Barnes & Noble aisle, the Judaica section of Barnes & Noble, and you pulled off a Jewish publication society Bible, it's often referred to as the Tanakh. So that you have the, the, the Torah, that's the top part of the Tanakh, the Nevi'im, that's the Na part of the Tanakh, and then the, the Ketuvim. So you have the law, the prophets, the Nevi'im, and then the Ketuvim, which is the writings. And I think I'm becoming more and more convinced that the way in which the Old Testament canon is shaped from, its, from a Hebrew standpoint is to place the priority on the law and the prophets, the, the Torah and the Nevi'im, and then the Ketuvim, the writings, are, are those particular areas of the Old Testament where we wrestle with what it means, what it looks like, and what it means to live under the anterior authority of the law and the prophets. Right? So you get into the books like Psalm, the Psalms. And think about how Psalm 1 begins. 
How blessed is the man who does not stand, walk, sit in the seat of the ungodly. But his delight is in, do you remember this? His delight is in the law. It's in the Torah. It's in the instruction of God. So even there at the beginning of the writings, the Ketuvim, you have this reference back to a delight in the law so that here you're, you're set off in these writings. What does it mean to live under the gracious character of God? What does it mean to live in the law? What does it mean to live in the light of His instruction and His ways? And it gets messy, doesn't it? I mean, you don't have to get very long into the writings where you realize this is a messy portion of the Bible. You have Proverbs, the, these, these Proverbs which give us maxims on life. And the hard thing about the Proverbs is they really work when they work, right? Um, but when they don't work, it's kind of rough. Like, and you know how these things can be falsified so quickly. I can remember my mother from a child saying things like, I've never seen the righteous forsaken or his seed out begging bread which is a statement that we can say is really true. I mean, I believe that's true, but there are times when it's not true. I mean, what about believers in the Sudan, for example? Or we prayed about today the suffering church in Bangladesh. So these Proverbs, I think, are meant to give us a general kind of anticipation about life, about the way in which life works. Um, Answer a fool according to his folly, Proverbs 24, verse 5. And then the next verse says, don't answer a fool according to his folly. Right, that's right there. Now, I mean, the critical scholars would very quickly say there's a mistake. I mean, in other words, there you have what's, what's called detography. You have a, a one verse that was written, and then it was written the next way, the wrong way. It, it was it was a scribal error. I actually don't think that's true. I don't think it is a scribal error. I think it gives us some perspective and insight on what it means to live in wisdom. Sometimes you need to answer a fool according to his folly, and sometimes you need to be quiet. And not do that. And it's a call to wisdom to know the difference between the one time and the other. And by the way, it's not a hard and fast science. In other words, I put it through my, I plug it into my smartphone and it gives me an answer. It doesn't going to work that way. And that's why we also have books like Job and Ecclesiastes. I don't know if it's ever bothered you. It's bothered me deeply. Um, especially as a teenager, I can remember this bothering me. Getting into the book of Job and, 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 and engaging Bildad, Zophar, and Eliphaz, right? These three friends, pseudo friends of Job, right? And by the way, you get into this book of Job and you see these three friends and they see Job for the first time. You see this, I think, in Job chapter 3 or 4. And, um, you know, they sat silent with Job for seven days. They saw him in his misery and they sat silent with Job for seven days. That, that was Job's friends at their best. <laughs> I mean, a lot can be learned, right, from watching these friends who go and they sit in silence. That's, that's, there's wisdom, right? But the problem is they start to, and it's my problem too, right, they start to talk, right? And when they begin to talk, I don't know if this has ever troubled you. I mean, what they say is really not all half that bad. You know, in other words, I can find verses in the Psalms or a verse in Proverbs that, that might support what Eliphaz, Bildad, Zophar are saying. And yet we do know from the perspective of the narrative that by the time we get to the end of Job, guess what? They're wrong. I mean, Job needs to offer sacrifice on their account because they, they, have, they have done wrong in the advice and the counsel that they've given to Job. So what do we see? We see embedded within the canon itself this kind of debate, this kind of challenge. Yes, we need to use wisdom, but we need to use wisdom in a wise way. 
Right? No, there's just no, there's no sort of cookie cutter thing here where you just sort of slap it on. No, there's a call to wisdom, to, to thought, to care. And let's put it in, in the context of the Trinity, which is where it should be. We need the Holy Spirit. The guidance of the Holy Spirit to know with wisdom what needs to be done in this particular situation. You know, I, I do think this is one of the problems. And I don't, I'm not completely against this. But in certain contexts where, where local churches will come up with, with um, position papers on this subject, that subject, or the other subject. Now that can be very good because it can force local churches to think through issues. But the problem sometimes with these position papers is then they become a sort of scientific grid by which all the complex situations that come their way just get shoved through that grid. And you know, don't you, that it's too personal, it's too particular, it's too complex to be able to say this on every particular situation. There's the truth of God that comes in and needs to constrain. And it's also what goes on in the book of Ecclesiastes, right? So you have this challenge built in within the law, the prophets, and the writings. But it's the law and the prophets that form the fundamental grammar. And within these prophets, the Nevi'im, we have um, the former prophets, Joshua, Judges, First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings. And then we have the latter prophets, which are four. And I, I, I think we've talked some about this in here before, if you remember. But we have four. We have Isaiah. We have Jeremiah. We have Ezekiel, Lord help us with that one, and we have the twelve. From early on, we, I would say second century BC at the latest, we have a reference by Ben Sirah to these, this corpus, these twelve prophets as one singular book, the twelve. And the book of Hosea has a signal position within the twelve. It's a signal position. Now, you might find this interesting, right? I don't know if you have these, these books memorized, but it goes something like Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, however we say this next name, Habakkuk, um, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi, right? But you have Hosea, Joel, Amos. And uh, you can look at the title of Amos. Amos is actually an older book than Hosea. It's a bit of a surprise, I think, from a modern historical consciousness to see that Amos is in position 3 and not in position 1. That's a bit of a surprise. And I think if you and I were drawing up the map, we would put Amos first. And by the way, lots of Old Testament scholars do that. When they want to give a kind of linear chronology about the minor prophets, they'll stick Amos first and then go on from there. One of my favorite Old Testament theologians, Gerhard von Rod, does the same thing. Hosea and Amos come first, but Amos is before Hosea. So why is Hosea at the beginning? and not book two or three, as we might expect. I think the issue that play is that Hosea forms a certain kind of anticipation. It's, it's there at the beginning because Hosea covers the whole gamut that one expects when they, when they begin to enter into the rest of the books, Joel, Amos, and on. Hosea prepares us for all the themes, the big themes that are going to come out in the rest of, the, rest of these books. And here are some of these themes. I'll give you three of the main ones. One of the major themes, and we're going to come back to this because of what I want to talk about this morning, but one of the major themes is, is um, the issue of idolatry. Yahweh is a jealous God. He loves His people. He will pour out His blessings on them. He has done so. But He does not want to share His marital bed with anyone else. We're going to come back to that. That's the main issue in Hosea. You are mine, I am yours, 
But if you're not going to be mine, then you're probably not going to be. That's the thrust that we're dealing with with idolatry. The second issue at play within the, the minor prophets and that Hosea really emphasizes is, um, is, the issue of, is the issue of trust in military might. Right? So you have the northern kingdom began to have all these different uh, centers of worship. And this was a real, a real challenge that the prophets brought against them because these centers of worship, Gilgal, Bethel, um, Sumeria, these centers of worship were where syncretistic worship practices were taking place. A little bit of Yahweh, a little bit of Asherah, a little bit of Baal. Bring it all together. We'll hedge our bets and make sure at least one of them is doing what they need to be doing. And, and that's a very callous way of saying it, but that's what was going on. They've done archaeological discoveries and, 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 and excavations in the northern kingdom in this area, and they found you know, um, carvings and engravings of depictions of Yahweh with his wife. With the, with his consort, Asherah, Asherah, as you might read in the um, in the Old Testament. So you saw all these sort of blended worshiping practices that was gone after in the Northern Kingdom, but in the Southern Kingdom they began to trust in military might, strongholds like Lachish, powerful centers where where military might was what these cities were known for, and they began to trust in their military might. They began to trust in their political infrastructure and not in the Lord Himself. That's a huge challenge throughout the book of the Twelve. Will you trust in me or are you going to trust in military might? Think about that psalm that we we all know. Some trust in chariots. Some trust in horses. But we trust in the name of the Lord our God. That's the call that the minor prophets bring. Are you going to trust in your military might are you going to trust in your political savvy or are you ultimately going to trust in me? Hmm. That dog will hunt right now, won't it? You watched this debate this week. It was fascinating. We're in a very interesting season politically. I will not go down that road for sake of my own personal preservation. Um, but I do think during this political time, I, I, I really don't care where you are politically on this. I mean, I think you need to think through this. Um, and I think some of you are probably already mad. Um, but I'm not all that concerned about your, what, where you're going to punch on uh, election day. But I do get very concerned within, especially the realm of orthodox Christianity, right? When people view the election, right, or whoever's going to be in that office, as if the apocalypse is on us. I mean, if the wrong person gets in that office, then it's over. I mean, we're, we're dead. It's over. Now, I, I, don't, I have political sensibilities, be very strong about this, care deeply about it, search all the issues out. We, I, I try to be responsible on that as well. I watched the debate with great interest the other night, right? Great interest. Only one person showed up, but I watched it with, with great interest. <laughs> See, I shouldn't have said that. Um, but at the end of the day, are we going to put our trust in chariots and horses and political machinations, or are we going to put our trust in the Lord? Right? It doesn't mean that we don't aren't politically involved. And we don't care. I'm not trying to say that at all. But we have to recognize, don't we? At the end of the day, like Augustine told us, we are members of the heavenly city. Our citizenship is already in heaven. That, that's where that's where we are. We are pilgrims. You realize this, right? And we always live in this tension of being indigenous and pilgrims. Yes, we're firmly planted in Birmingham, Alabama. This is where we live. This is our place. But at the same time, we're pilgrims who are moving through this place to another time and another place. I mean, that's the challenge I think that we get from the minor prophets as well. 
to whom or on whom or in whom are you going to place your trust? Is it going to be in the Lord Himself? Or is it going to be in the political machinations and military might that we put so much energy into? And that, that's a big point, I think, in the Minor Prophets. And then the third one is, um, is going after injustice. This is a big thing throughout the Minor Prophets. Injustice. I'm going to spend a whole Sunday morning on this with you, probably next week or the week after, where we talk about justice, mishpat, that particular term that's so important. What does it mean when uh, Micah the prophet says, Oh, you leaders of Jerusalem and Samaria, shouldn't you know justice of everybody? I mean, of all the people out there, shouldn't you be the one who knows justice? I mean, that, that's something that we're going to need to wrestle with. What does it mean to care um, for, for others? So, those are the big themes. All those issues are addressed in the book of Hosea. And the book of Hosea ends with the challenge to discern, to have wisdom regarding the ways of the Lord to know whether His ways are right and we will walk in them or whether we'll walk in our own ways and then run, as I tell my children all the time, you're going to run into a brick wall, right? And they do. The northern kingdom runs into a brick wall and the southern kingdom runs into a brick wall as well. So back to Hosea. Well, I don't know if you've ever engaged this book before. I'm assuming that many of you have. But Hosea is a deeply emotional book. I mean, you have a very interesting, and we don't see this very often in the Minor Prophets, except for Jonah, but you actually see a narrative in a story about the prophet himself. So that the first three chapters of Hosea are a prophetic sign act. Hosea is called to do something as, a, as an embodiment of what's going on within the nation itself of Israel. And then after that, 4 through 14, we actually begin to see the actual oracles and speeches of Hosea. Do you know this, this quote? All happy families are alike, but each unhappy family is unhappy in its own way. Do you know who that comes from? Tolstoy, right? First, first sentence in Anna Karenina from Leo Tolstoy. I, don't, I was in the movie theater recently, which is not something I do very often, but I happened to see that. I guess Anna Karenina is coming out as a movie around Thanksgiving or Christmas. Am I right on that? Um, uh, and uh, that, that's, you know, for those of you who don't know Anna Karenina, that's not a happy date night. You know, I mean, it just, uh, you, know, you think about so, you, you, Pride and Prejudice, you know, Sense and Sensibility, those are great date nights, romantic evening. Anna Karenina, don't invest a lot of money in the dinner beforehand. It's not a, that, it's a rough go. Um, because basically it's Tolstoy working out in, in a very powerful narrative um, this particular phrase, that he, this, this, this maxim, this, this aphorism that he has at the beginning here. Uh, all happy families are alike, but each unhappy family is unhappy in their own particular way. And when we come into the book of Hosea, we get to see an unhappy family, a really rough family. The word of the Lord comes to Hosea and he says, Hosea, I want you to go and I want you to, to marry a daughter of prostitution. I want you to marry a prostitute which raises all kinds of ethical issues, frankly. But here the Lord tells him to do this, and he goes and he, and he finds Gomer, the daughter of the Blyam, and he makes Gomer his wife. And then Gomer begins to have children. Can I read you these children's names? They're not, I don't think they're on the top three on any of these baby name books. <laughs> um, the first one they named Jezreel. And the reason why the first baby was named Jezreel is because Jezreel was the place in the northern kingdom, the location where Jehu 
did his, his coup d'etat. He did his act of tyranny by, by slaying the Omride kings and, and, uh, he, uh, and an act of assassination so that then he could be the king. And, and, and God didn't like that. He said, I want you to name your first child Jehu because I want that to be a kind of memorial for the wicked that Jehu has done and the northern kingdom has done. So, so far, not so good. And then there's a second child. She conceived again, and now she bore a daughter. And then the Lord said to him, Name her Loruchamah, which means no mercy. So the first one's Jezreel. The second child's name is Loruchamah, which means no mercy. And that's, a, I mean, again, a very powerful statement about the disposition of God toward His people at this particular moment in the divine economy. No mercy anymore. The time for half measures is over. There have been literally centuries now up until this point where the northern kingdom has continued to act in defiance of her God. Not one good king in the northern kingdom. A complete act of betrayal when it comes to what we would call covenant fidelity. Blending worship with other gods. And now the time for mercy is over. It's no mercy time. Well, there's a third child coming. When she had weaned Loharamah, she conceived and she bore a son. And then the Lord said, Name him Lo-Ami, which means not my people in Hebrew. So you have Jezreel. I mean, this is quite a brood, isn't it? Prostitute wife, three children, Jezreel, no mercy, and then not my people. <laughs> you know, I guess we're not inviting them over for Thanksgiving anytime soon, right? I mean, this is a, it's very difficult. And Hosea... We're not really given any insight into Hosea's psychological state. I mean, you can imagine. I think, again, that would, that would cause us to miss the point. The point is that Hosea is embodying in his family life what God's family life is with his people. Right? Jezreel, no mercy, not my people. It's actually a very powerful phrase. It's a reversal of the covenant formula, which is at the heart of God's relationship with His people. What is the covenant formula in the Old Testament? I will be your God, and you will be my people. And that, that's the phrase. I will be my God, and you will be my people. But at the heart of the book of Deuteronomy is this really double-edged sword. If you will not be my people, which if you will be my people, blessing all day long. But if you will not be my people, then you're not going to be a people at all. Lo me. And that's what's happening here. Not my people. It's a powerful, powerful image in, in Hosea's own personal life here. But then, lest we think that's the end of the story, we have chapter 2, which I, we can't really go into, but in chapter 2, we have um, verse 9 says this, I'm going to take back my grain and my wine. I will take my wool and my flax which are to cover her nakedness, and I will uncover her shame in the sight of her lovers. In other words, now God is exposing her to the nations for who she really is. And we get into chapter 2, it gets worse. And then there's a little sort of semblance of hope in this, which moves us into chapter 3. And I want to read this to you. It's only a few verses, this whole chapter. Right before it, in, in verse 2 it says, And I will take you for my wife forever. I will take you for my wife in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and mercy. I will take you for my wife in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. And on that day I will answer, says the Lord, I will answer the heavens, and they shall answer the earth. And the earth shall answer the grain, and the wine, and the oil. 
and I will sow him for myself in the land. I will have pity on lo ruchamah. I will have mercy now on no mercy. And I will say to no people, lo ami, now you are my people. So then the Lord said to me again, Go love a woman who has a lover and is an adulteress, just as the Lord loves the people of Israel, though they turn to the other gods and they love raisin cakes. Again, probably an act of this ritual, um, ritual uh, idolatry. So I brought her, I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer of barley and a measure of wine. And I said to her, You must remain as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore. You shall not have intercourse with a man, nor I with you. For the Israelites shall remain many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or pillars, without ephod or teraphim. In other words, what's going on here is Hosea is told, Now go get her back. Somehow, and we don't get all the background on this, somehow she was sold into, into, into slavery. Go buy her back now, because this is exactly what I'm going to do for my people. They're going to be destroyed. They're going to be exiled. They're going to be um, torn asunder. That's the language that's used in the Minor Prophets. You're going to be, become like a wasted field. But when all of that is over, I'm going to come and I'm going to buy you back again. I'm going to bring you back and you're going to be my wife. I'm going to protect you. I'm going to keep you inside. I'm going to guard you from your own idolatrous ways. And you're no longer going to be low on me. You're going to be my people. It's the same movement that we see in all of the prophets. We see this in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah, go and tell this people. right? But then when we get to Isaiah chapter 40, comfort, comfort, my people, says the Lord your God. What do you have in the minor prophets? And this is what sets up Hosea for the rest of, of the twelve. What do you have? You have a passionate lover's quarrel. A lover's quarrel between Yahweh and His people. Why did Yahweh move toward His people in electing love? Why did He choose them when they were in, in Egypt and even beforehand? Because they were mighty? Because they were beautiful? No. He chose Israel because He loved Israel. That's why. It was an act of His own self-determination to be a God for this people in covenant relationship with them and all the mess that that was going to bring. You see, when we come to the cross... When we come to that place at Calvary, it shouldn't surprise us to see what's going on there. It's a radical expression of God's mercy for us. It's radical. It's the kind of hunting, it's the kind of hounding that you see in the minor prophets as well. Even though you are defiant against me and unfaithful, I'm going to pursue you to the end. And even though you tell me no, I'm ultimately going to tell you yes. You cannot ward me off. Why? Because the gifts and the callings of God, according to the book of Romans, are without revocation. God does not make a claim on His people and then pull back from it. There might be moments of turmoil, but finally and ultimately when we come to the cross, we see God's final yes in this great drama that's prepared for us in the Old Testament. I'm going to be your God and you're going to be my people. And this is how I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it by allowing my own judgment that judgment that I promised you and that I gave you, but the judgment in its fullness, I'm going to allow it to fall onto me. All happy families are alike. But unhappy families are different. They're unhappy in their own particular ways. The Old Testament, the minor prophets give us the own particular way in which Yahweh's familial relationship with His people is rather, is rather tragic is oftentimes broken. But God's commitment to His people because of His commitment to Himself is radical. 
He's a lover who goes back to buy his prostitute wife back again. That's the kind of love that he shows. And then we see that displayed fully on the cross. There's the hound of heaven. There's Yahweh the Father pursuing his people at the expense of his own self and and his own son. So today, I just want to kind of get us going, right? Hosea starts us off. It gives us this kind of this, this tension that we feel. And then as we press on, we'll look at some of these other themes as well, like justice, um, like theodicy, the problem of evil, and, um, and a few others as well. Do we have time for questions? I don't know if we do or not. Um, okay, maybe we'll, we'll fire a few out here. Well, I'll just open up, and you were referring to politics and the state of our situation. Can you speak to receiving blessing and curse as, as we as small people see, I guess you'd say, a political outcome or even the outcome of a war? You know, it's, it's such, um, oh, such murky water to move into um, because... I mean, you remember Jerry Falwell got into big trouble years ago for this kind of thing. Um, when Katrina hit New Orleans and he made that statement and you know about why, because New Orleans being a bad city and that's why they got it. And, you know, it's, there's such danger in making these kind of statements, these broad statements about um, reading the times and then being able to move back from that into... Um, divine intentionality and how one understands that. Right? So I, I think one needs to be careful about giving that. But at the same time, I was with a, 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 some of you are in this class at Beeson, a lay academy class, and we were reading in Amos where Amos says, does a calamity come on a city and the Lord does not cause it? Right? Now I can't, I can't walk away from statements like that in the Bible and say, but at the same time, even though I might not be able to put the narrative together in the mind of God myself, and I would be actually quite reticent to do so, I think it's not the same thing as saying that God is not in, involved in that kind of thing, where nations continue to act in defiance of the Lord and His ways, and then that there are repercussions nationally to pay for that. I, 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 would, not, um, I would not deny that reality. Again, I'm not, I don't think we're always able to see it, because again, it can be falsified. Well, then why not that country, and why not that one? Again, I don't know all that. But the fact that the Lord is sovereign over all nations and doing His work in those nations for His own purposes, and that can involve with it both blessing and cursing, I don't think we can walk away from that. Well, we'd have to walk away from too much of the Bible in the face of that. So it does call us. I mean, you think about um, if my people which are called by my name will humble themselves, right? I mean, you have that kind of language is, um, is in the book of Jeremiah, right? where the prophet is encouraging the exiles in Babylon to seek the welfare of the city. It's it's actually fascinating. In other words, here you are as aliens, sojourners in another land. Build your houses, plant your vineyards, and seek the welfare of that city. And and, and be repentant in the middle of that. And I think that's how I I view the church in the middle of, of, of the world. We're resident aliens who plant ourselves here. Um, awaiting another time in another place, but we're exiles. Now, this is not home for us. But at the same time, we need to seek the welfare of the city in acts of repentance and, um, and believing what Abraham Kuyper said about Jesus. And I believe this, that when Jesus looks at the world, there's not one square inch of that world where Jesus does not say, that part's mine. That, that's mine, that's mine, that, all of that. I appreciated what we heard this morning in, 
in the um, in the uh, um, stewardship uh, from from Don Menendez. Now, it, the, the question is, you know, I, and I, I wrestle with this, so you know, Lord forgive me. Um, but you know, the question when it comes to like our, even our money, it's not it's not what do we do with that ten percent? It's how do we view the ninety? Right? That's, that's the hard thing. That's hard for really hard for me. Um, and I think that's the same with this world. I mean, we don't. It's not just a little bit that we give Jesus here. We compartmentalize. You can have this part of my life. You can have this part of my political world. You can have no. It's how do we recognize that Jesus is Lord over it all? All. Now that's that's I think the kind of the challenge for resident aliens within the culture within where we live. One more. Okay. Thank you, Mark. Next week, we'll see you again. <laughs>